this is Craig Brown and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is from the Gospel of John, from the 6th chapter beginning at verse 1 through verse 14. It's the basis of the sermon at First Free Methodist Church on October 15, 2023. It's part of our series called Hunt the Good Stuff. It's about tools for living a life of gratitude. Let's hear the text first from the 2020 revision of the New American Standard Bible. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, A large crowd was following him because they were watching the signs he was performing on those who were sick. But Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So Jesus, after raising his eyes and seeing the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where do we abide bread to feed these people? But as he was saying this only to test him, for he himself knew what he intended to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not enough for them, for each to receive just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people... Reclined to eat. Now there was plenty of grass in that place, so the men reclined, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were reclining. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover pieces, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with pieces from of five loaves of, from five loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Let's set the stage for this story in the first four verses of the text that I just read a moment ago. The story from John chapter 6, opens to us an event that's actually recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, John's Gospel is carefully constructed so that each uh, chapter, as it presents itself to us, functions to impart a, a certain truth about Jesus. So when reading this Gospel, we must be aware not only to read for understanding, but for meaning as well. Jesus retreats to the other side of the Sea of Galilee at the beginning of the story, and it's hard to know exactly where he's at when he does that. He was most likely in the very northwest corner of the sea, perhaps even a little bit more on its northern shore. So he could have gone along the east shore near Gentiles and the Decapolis, uh, but most think he likely traveled Uh, southward, landing on Israel's side of the Sea of Galilee. Regardless, he traveled by boat, but the crowd followed by land. So the image here is that Jesus is 
uh, on a boat with perhaps some of his disciples and they're sailing along offshore and that the crowds are following his movement and the, so they keep moving along the shoreline uh, to parallel the path he seems to be taking. Well, why are they doing this? Well, the text tells us in verse 2, they saw all the signs and healings that he had done so far. So take notice how their fixation on Jesus surrounds his actions, the things he's been doing, not so much on who he is, his being. Now, this is going to come to an inflection point at the end of the passage today, but it's important to notice that the reason they're following him is because of the signs and the miracles that he's performed so far. The text then tells us that in verse 3, Jesus went up onto a mountain with his disciples. Now, the mountain's uh, in biblical tradition are places of divine significance. Of course, uh, we often, like the ancient Israelites and the Jews, uh, think of heaven in spatial terms. So the higher you are, in some sense, the closer to heaven uh, one might perceive themselves to be. So mountains have a, uh, an important role to play throughout Scripture. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. Uh, to receive the law from God. Elijah goes up onto two different mountains in his ministry. He goes up onto one mountain, uh, Mount Carmel, where he faces a duel with uh, Ahab and Jezebel and the priests of Baal. And then he goes up onto a mountain another time, uh, the same mountain Moses went up where he had a meeting with the Lord. The, the temple in Jerusalem is on the top of a mountain. So these mountains become central uh, when we read the text. Significant things happen on top of mountains. In this case, Moses is the central figure we might want to call to our remembrance, and it has to do with what's happening in verse 4. It says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Now the Passover is a central motif in Jewish history. It is the commemoration or the remembrance of uh, the Israelites being freed from their slavery in Egypt. And so Moses, as a figure here, is particularly important. It's the time of the Passover. And so in some ways, the way this story is written is that it's written in almost a parallel form, if you will, to the story we read in Exodus of Moses going up onto the mountain to receive the law. In this case, the crowds go up the mountain to encounter Jesus. And here we find some of John's meaning. This event that's occurring here in John chapter 6 in some ways, is the granting of a new law. Rather than being a law on tablets, this new law, which is actually no law at all, is Jesus himself. It, it opens a key passageway for us here to pay attention to, that Jesus has now become our replacement for law. Christians often struggle with this truth. We oftentimes fall back to rule-keeping and law-keeping. We often uh, will even take the very teachings of Jesus and distill them or kind of boil them down to these principles or truths that we think we have to be obedient to or live toward, rather than understanding ourselves in a living relationship with Jesus, the same Jesus in the story who hosts the meal. So learning uh, to live by grace and faith instead of the law is oftentimes a lifelong challenge for us. Jesus has become a replacement for the law. And in many ways, what John is representing in the story is that's exactly what Jesus' role is. So it should help us redefine for a moment how it is we're to 
be engaged with Jesus? Are we engaged with him as kind of a moral teacher and a lawgiver, or are we engaged with Jesus as one who has lived, died, and is resurrected so that we might experience salvation and redemption? A completely different lens for us to look at the life of Jesus through this life of grace rather than law. The story continues in verse 5. Once this crowd has gathered around, it says, So Jesus, raising his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, he looked to one of his disciples named Philip, and he asks them a question. And the question he asks is actually somewhat funny and actually more ridiculous than it is really a literal question that Jesus is expecting him to honestly answer. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Philip then responds by saying, well, to be honest, uh, 200 denarii isn't enough money to feed all of these people. So Jesus sees this crowd that's come to see him, which the, te- the text tells us, and all three, all four gospels tell us the same number, 5,000 men, men are there, not counting women and children. And they're on this mountain, they're far away from any kind of marketplaces or bakeries or grocery stores. So he asks Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread to feed all these people? And so Philip says 200 denarii is not enough, even to give these people a little bit of bread. And so the question Jesus asks Philip is somewhat ridiculous. Uh, The ability to procure that much bread is impossible. Uh, There would be no way that you could find that much bread at any one time. A denarii, for example, that Philip says we need 200 of them, uh, a denarii is a day's wage. So uh, it's, it's almost a year's worth of wages wouldn't even be enough to buy it, even if you could find enough bread to feed all of those people. It's literally impossible. And so uh, Philip's response is to somewhat throw up his hands and mildly say to Jesus in not so many words, are you crazy? And so Andrew, who happens to be Simon Peter's brother, uh, in the meantime, apparently has been busy surveying the crowd for what they had. In other words, did they bring any food with them? And all he finds is a boy who has brought five barley loaves with him and two fish. And the fish are probably dried fish that he has with him. Uh, this is enough for the boy, uh, but it is not an even enough for 50 people, much less 5,000 or even more than that. There's a, a popular biblical teaching within more progressive circles that Uh, The sharing of the loaves and the fish by this young boy encouraged all the people who had food with them to share it as well so that everyone could be fed. And so it turns the feeding of the 5,000 really more into a story of just kind of mutual sharing of what everybody brought with them. Um, Andrew, having searched the, the crowd that was there, didn't find anybody with food except for this boy. And so I sometimes might raise questions about the need we have sometimes to explain these acts of Jesus in a, in a way that uh, rejects the, the supernatural way in which they occur. In this case, Andrew's looked around, can't find anything. He finds this boy with five loaves and two fish. And it opens up a key passageway for us as this story begins to unfold. Sometimes our sin is a lack of divine imagination. 
You know, Jesus knows quite well what he's going to do. The story even tells us this, that Jesus knew exactly what he intended to do in verse 6. Philip and Andrew are pursuing the effort on a human line of common sense. And so they're thinking, well, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? Of course, we can't buy this bread. There wouldn't even be a a bakery or people baking enough bread to feed all these people, much less buy the bread. And Andrew is going around looking to see who has something that can be shared, and all they can find is five loaves and two fish from one boy. Both Philip and Andrew, they don't really have a point of reference of how this could actually work out otherwise. And with short of buying bread or finding out what everybody has with them, they have no point of reference to understand how this thing might play out. The, the challenge after seeing Jesus do the miracles he's done, the healings he's done, and all of the acts and wonders that he's done, is that they, in some ways, they can't extend their imagination that Jesus could meet this need. They're always thinking about the question of Jesus in terms of uh, possibility, not probability. And so even after watching Jesus do all the different things he's done, uh, here they are sitting with 5,000 men on the side of a hill, and they are completely without an answer as to how Jesus could address this problem. And our problem is often the same. The same God who saves us for eternal life through Jesus Christ, the same God who sanctifies us, this same God at times we have a hard time understanding as an abiding presence in our life that can sustain us through any crisis that we might have. Now we turn to the feast proper, verses 10 to 13. Now Jesus' instruction is that everyone is to recline and eat. And this custom of reclining to eat is different than just telling everybody to sit down. Uh, when they're going to eat together in the ancient world, uh, men and women didn't eat together. They ate separately. So uh, they would probably gather together in, in groups of maybe 50 to 100 people, and the men would sit together, and the women would sit with children separately. And so as they organize themselves to sit and eat this meal, the text tells us that in verse 10 and 11, there's lots of grass for them to sit down on. And as they gathered into these groups, uh, they begin to sit in little clusters all around the mountainside. Now, it says that Jesus took five loaves and two fish and giving thanks, he gave it to the people. Now, the language here is unique since the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who tell this story, they tell us of Jesus blessing the bread and breaking it. But in John's gospel, when we hear the story, we don't hear any of that language. All we hear is something different, that Jesus gives thanks. And so there's a meaning here about Jesus, which we kind of repeat and proclaim in Holy Communion, that, that Jesus' life multiplies, it's abundant, it's food, it sustains people, and that they would have as much as they they wanted of not only the food Jesus is now going to offer them, but in many ways, what Jesus himself is going to offer them. So then Jesus then tells them after they're all fed, they've had their fill, they've eaten all they can possibly eat, that Jesus now is this kind of, in many ways, a, a new Moses figure, tells them to gather everything up, and there's 12 baskets of leftovers. 
Now, I try not to make too much about numbers in the Bible, but numbers are important and have uh, some degree of meaning in the text that we need to pay attention to. Uh, Twelve, of course, is the number of the tribes in the house of Israel. Twelve is also the product of three times four. And the numbers three and four are important in the Bible. Number four uh, is a, uh, a symbol or a number of the earth or of creation. Three is the number of God, oftentimes used to represent the divine. So three times four is 12. And then together, three and four equal the sum of seven, which is the kind of the biblical number symbolizing perfection or completeness. These numbers are, you know, what they are, what they are. But at the same time, we need to take note that the way in which the story is told definitely has kind of Moses and Mount Sinai in the background. And so some of these numbers become important to us, like the 12 baskets and the 12 tribes of Israel, the distribution going to everyone, much as the law is distributed to everybody by Moses. It opens up a key passageway from us here, that God needs nothing from us beyond what we already have. In the case of this great miracle, Jesus simply uses the bread and fish on hand from a small boy. Common sense tells us that there's no way that this works, and hence the part of the story about Philip and Andrew. But we often believe the same. Sometimes we believe that God requires something extraordinary from us. Not so. God invites us to give what we have. It's not so much that God needs it as much as we need to give it. It's a choice, a choice grounded in faith that God can redeem, multiply, and use it. So really what it comes down to for the boy as he brings his five loaves and his two fish isn't so much that Jesus needs it, but in many ways that boy needs to give it. And that act of giving, God transforms into something powerful. And now just in the final verse of the story, verse 14, we see the reaction of the crowd after all of this has happened. It says in verse 14, therefore, when the people saw the sign which had been performed, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. The reaction of the crowd is to make an affirmation about who Jesus is, the prophet who's come into the world. This is, again, the Moses and Elijah reference. This is the long-awaited prophet that people have been waiting for, the, the dawning of this new messianic age. It's the affirmation of this crowd of Jesus as the Messiah, and so they embrace him. And so this is the long-expected person that the, the nation of Israel has been waiting for. Now, we didn't read the next verse, verse 15, but it plays a part of verse 14, because once they conclude that he's the Messiah coming to the world, in other words, the, the prophet who has come is what the text says to us, uh, their first response to that is to find him, and then they try to make him king, it says in verse 15. So Jesus, aware that they intended to come and make him by force, come to take him by force to make him the king, withdrew again into the mountain by himself alone. And so they want to make Jesus the king all of a sudden, but instead he rejects and he flees into the mountains to be by himself. The, the reality here theologically is that the kingship of Jesus cannot happen except through the cross. 
And so any effort to shortcut that or to leave that part of the narrative of Jesus's life out in many ways is to fall victim to the very same temptation of Satan in the wilderness with Jesus when he began his public ministries to somehow bypass the cross. That for Jesus to become the king requires the cross and resurrection. And so the crowd comes to try to make him the king. And so what they try to do is out of their sense of gratitude and thanksgiving and wonder at this great sign Jesus has performed is they now simply intend to take matters into their own hands. Well, that's the last key passageway for us. That our response to Jesus is gratitude and surrender. You know, the first response of the crowd is correct. The affirmation where they say he is the prophet who has come into the world. In other words, he's Messiah. That's correct. And they name him so, the prophet who is to come. But then they take the next step of deigning to make him king. And see, this is not the posture of a Jesus follower. And that's what this story helps us understand. If Jesus is to us who he must be, our response isn't one of gratitude, thanksgiving, and so let's make him king. Our response is gratitude, but surrender, surrender. We don't make him king. He makes himself king. Our work is to follow, to listen, to discern, to obey. And so our response out of this gratitude is to say to Jesus, do with us as you will, rather than for us to say, oh, Jesus, let us do to you as we will. If you have comments or reflections, I'd love to hear from you. Visit my website, revcraig.com. You can click on news in the upper right-hand corner, and then you'll see a drop-down menu that says podcast, and then you can click on an episode and leave a comment. I also invite you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.